0: This is an update for members of the American Association of Orthodontists. I'm Pam Paladin, welcome. And I'm joined today by Roger Hanshaw, who is a parliamentarian and working with the AAO House of Delegates, along with AAO's Kevin Dillard, our general counsel. Thanks for taking the time to chat with us today, and we will be talking about some advice and information for association leaders from the component level all the way through the AAO level. Gentlemen, thank you for being here.
1: Happy to be here, Pam. Thank you. Thanks, Pam.
0: Roger, let's start with parliamentary procedure. This is kind of a, an area that a lot of people think they know about, but they really don't. What are some common misperceptions about parliamentary procedure?
1: Perhaps the biggest misperception Pam is that that parliamentary procedure is a stifling set of rules and a a formal system that impedes people from being able to participate in business meetings and it's really not that it's not that at all and isn't meant to be that I tell all the organizations and groups with which I work that the rules of parliamentary procedure are meant to be tools to help groups and boards and committees actually get their business done not impede their work and I like to tell people that if the rules of procedure are getting in the way of you accomplishing what you set out to do as a board or what you set out to accomplish as a group or a committee then you either have bad rules or you aren't following them correctly and that there's a lot of flexibility built into the rules of parliamentary procedure and that the most important thing groups and organizations and board members can do is learn how to operate within those rule structures understand what your rules are understand what flexibility you have and then learn how to use them to actually accomplish business not look at them as a formality or a hurdle that has to be crossed or something that gets in the way of you accomplishing goals
0: but the structure seems to really help move things along properly
1: that's its intent so all the authors of works of parliamentary procedure say that in the beginning of their books they say that these are tools that are meant to help board accomplished business not get in the way of groups getting things done.
0: Is there a particular uh, book that you ascribe to?
1: So, the AAO Parliamentary Authority is the American Institute of Parliamentarians Standard Code of Parliamentary Procedure. It's a wonderful book. It has a lot of flexibility built into it. Many of the folks out there who serve on boards and committees of nonprofit organizations may be familiar with Robert's Rules of Order. It's perhaps the most famous of all the parliamentary authorities out there, but realize it's a lot more rigid. So, when people get their first base of experience in parliamentary systems. Often it's in Robert's Rules of Order, and AAO has the the advantage, I'll say, of operating in a more flexible parliamentary system. And the AIP standard code is designed to do exactly that. It's designed to operate for smaller organizations, smaller boards, and ha- it has built into it exactly the kind of flexibility I'm talking about.
0: We have a lot of uh, association leaders who are listening to this podcast at various levels of leadership. For for these people, what do you think are the top three rules of parliamentary procedure that, that they should keep in mind in their deliberations?
1: I think I would start by saying that you are a master of your own rules. So the first and most important thing to remember for all organization leaders is that if you don't like the rules you have, realize you can create new ones. So you're only bound by the rules of your parent organization. So for AAO leadership, it's only the rules of our parent body that We can't change all of our own local rules. We have control over that. So number one is put in place a rule structure that actually works for you and lets you accomplish your goals in the way you want to accomplish them. Number two, realize that while members have rights, one member doesn't have a right to hold a board hostage. So at the end of the day, the most votes prevails on almost everything. So it's important for organization leaders to remember that while we have to let people have their say and have to let people participate in the deliberative process fully and freely, we also can't let them hold us hostage. And lastly, I think it's important to remember that in all parliamentary systems, silence is approval. Oftentimes we find that boards and committees suffer from circumstances in which people will say, well, I really didn't think that was done correctly at our meeting today, but I wasn't going to say anything about it. Well, if they haven't said anything about it, they've waived their right to say anything about it later. Your opportunity to call foul, so to speak, in a business meeting begins and ends right there in the business meeting. If you wait until it's out in the parking lot, you've waived your right to disagree with the decision
0: of the body. Very interesting observations, Roger. Uh, You've now worked with the AAO House of Delegates for for a few years now. Um, What have you observed in our meetings that works well?
1: So, Pam, I have become a big fan of, of the reference committee process that AAA uses, and I find that that helps the organization sort out some of the things that otherwise would become contentious or lengthy debate on the floor of the House of Delegates. Not all organizations work that way, and, and in fact, among my client base, it's very few organizations that engage in that level of deliberation outside the actual floor of the business meeting itself. That, to me, is a wonderful tool that the organization uses. It not only speeds up the business meeting, but it probably results in a better work product than what could be produced on the overall floor of the House. And and second, I'll, I'll say that because of the parliamentary authority that AAO has, the standard code of parliamentary procedure, you have available a tool called adopt in lieu of, which is a motion that allows you to essentially distill several ideas down into one more comprehensive approach to a problem and adopt that overall solution instead of sorting through four or five proposals separately. I'm a big fan of that motion. I like to encourage all my clients to use it. I find that the AAO House of Delegates uses it regularly and didn't need any encouragement from me at all. And that's a good thing. It shows that the organization and its members know how to use the tools of parliamentary procedure, are using them well, and are doing it in a way that lets them take advantage of the flexibility we have in our parliamentary authority.
0: And now we're joined by Kevin Dillard, who is AAO's general counsel and frequent guest on our podcast. So glad to have you back with us, Kevin. Thank you, Pam. And we're going to be talking about uh, fiduciary responsibilities and affiliation agreements and these kinds of things that would be helpful for association leaders at all levels to be aware of. Um, Can you first tell us about uh, what affiliation agreements are and why they are important?
2: Sure. And first, let me just say I've I've enjoyed working with Roger over the last three years. I think this is the fourth year that we've been working together with the House of Delegates. It's always a pleasure working with him, working through the uh, very some of the, some of the times very difficult questions, uh, procedural questions we work through. Um, he's an expert. I think you can hear that come through loud and clear. And uh, the AO is privileged to work with him. Regarding the affiliation agreements, a lot of constituent component leaders, I think, are confused by these things. Unnecessarily, it's a big big words in them. They're you know several page document that say a lot of things, a lot of legalese, but really boiled down, all it does. Is codify the agreement, the relationship between the AAO and the constituent groups, the eight regional groups, and then from the constituent groups to the component groups. So the component groups sign one of these agreements with the constituent groups, the constituent groups sign it with the AAO. And really all it does is just, it's a a formal, necessary way of saying we need to all be on the same page about certain things. And, you know, I won't go through clause by clause, but really some of the biggest things are making sure that the bylaws don't conflict with each other, to make sure that the the AO understands and knows and has confidence that the constituent and component groups all are doing things in a way that does not fundamentally conflict with the way the AO is legally set up and must operate uh, at our level under the laws of Missouri so that's one thing another thing that it does is it it uh, prohibits constituent and component groups from making political contributions Uh, it's one of the things that not a whole lot of people know or think about but in those agreements there's uh, literally a prohibition against those groups making uh, political contributions it also prohibits them from instituting their own way of policing the ethics rules that's all at the AO national level, and, and a lot of people who've been involved in dental politics for a long time know that the ADA does it completely differently. The ADA actually adjudicates ethics complaints at the local level, and then it bumps up to the uh, national level for appeals. AOs is exactly uh, – is not like that at all. All ethics complaints, whether they be from other doctors, other members of the AO, or members of the public – uh, most likely patients comes through the AO central office and the affiliation agreements prohibit the constituent and component groups from establishing their own peer-reviewed ethics complaint process, because we don't want anything to interfere with the very careful thought out process that we have at the national level that's there to protect the due process of the members and to protect the AO from from undue liability. Those are some of the reasons that we have those in place. They're They're on an automatic renewal, so once they were first signed, I want to say about 10 years ago, we worked through that process they are just automatically renewed. And and to my knowledge, in the seven or eight years that I've been general counsel, I don't think that there's been a revision to any of them. They're pretty solid. Uh, They're just there, I think the the important thing to remember when it comes to affiliation agreements, they're there to protect everyone, uh, to again, to, to solidify, codify our relationship with each other and just make sure that we're all on the same page.
0: Would it be advisable for people who are leaders in the association Component constituent AAO levels to actually read these agreements so that they're familiar with their the content.
2: Absolutely, absolutely, and I don't think anybody who's uh, been involved with associations or or um, even even down all the way to the very local level like subdivision governance. I don't think anybody who's been involved with that and has has been familiar with reading bylaws that kind of thing would be surprised by anything that's in these affiliation agreements, but. Anybody who comes into association leadership with the AO should absolutely familiarize themselves with those documents because uh, outside of their own bylaws and articles of incorporation, it's probably one of the top uh, three or four most important documents that's going to govern their their business and their relationship with the other entity with which they've contracted.
0: Let's talk about the top three things that component and constituent boards should keep in mind to withhold their duties to their organization as fiduciaries, Kevin.
2: Yes, uh, that's and, and just in the interest of time, we could we could probably spend a good six or eight hours, if not uh, much more than that, on everything that falls under the umbrella of fiduciary duty of a board. The three the three things I'm going to pick out today, though, just again in the interest of time and, and I, what I've seen kind of come up most often with questions that I get from association leaders calling me to say, "What can we do about this?" or "Could you take a look at this agenda?" You know, number one, first and foremost, I think is just this one of the fundamental underpinnings of fiduciary duty is exercising the business business judgment rule and making sure that association leaders if when in other words when you're a board member on uh, of an association whether at the national state uh, constituent level you have to always exercise the best judgment you can with regard to that entity. So you you don't need to be thinking about anything else. You shouldn't be thinking about how that particular decision is gonna affect you personally in your practice. You need to be thinking about one thing and one thing only. Is this a good thing for the organization that I'm serving? And as long as you make a good faith effort to make a good decision, you're not gonna be held liable. Uh, you, You can be held liable, actually, even though you're not getting paid. I think there's a bit of a misunderstanding that a lot of association volunteers don't get paid, so therefore they don't have liability. That's absolutely not true. They are fiduciaries of their organization thus the fiduciary rule. And, and if they make improper decisions or improperly made decisions that incur liability to the association, they themselves can become liable if they don't exercise that good business judgment rule. So if they're making those those decisions based upon a conflict of interest that they haven't disclosed or that the organization doesn't know about, they can be attacked personally. It's, it's rare that that happens. But the bottom line, the thumbnail rule, so to speak, is to make sure that when you're on a board of an association to make judgments based upon the best interest of that organization. The second thing I think that most board members need to remember is just simply keeping confidential information confidential for any number of reasons. Boards, committees, councils, often, when they go into a closed session, especially, anything that is discussed in closed session, the only thing that should be reported out or discussed is the actual outcome of votes in a closed or executive session. The two terms are kind of interchangeable. Some some states call it an executive session. We typically at the AO level call it a closed session. Same thing. It just means that we're going to restrict the audience to only the voting members of the organization and then invited guests who are necessary to either uh, understand the issue or to ask questions to the board or committee can ask questions and then to implement it to report back out. Anything that's discussed in there, which could include personnel issues, it could include uh, just personality issues of different uh, members or people that the board or committee is considering to appoint to certain something or choosing people for an award. All of that needs to be kept confidential. The other reason, most common reason that information should be kept confidential is because what is being discussed is either legislative or more likely legal strategy so literally you have an attorney in the room with the board discussing legal strategy that is attorney-client privilege at that point and if that information is discussed to anyone outside that room that doesn't fall under that privilege which is almost nobody then that Privilege is broken, and anything that's said, including the lawyer's advice to the board or committee or counsel as a group, can then be discovered in a court of law or through depositions. And that's you, you absolutely want to avoid that. Now, in an organization like the AO, most everybody knows everybody else, and there's a temptation to you know, meet afterwards and discuss things at, at a restaurant or whatever, or even over a drink. And you just have to be careful doing that because you don't know who's listening in and you don't know who might be at the next table over and it's just really inappropriate to be discussing what was discussed in a closed session once you leave that room we always say when we go into a closed session what is said in this room stays in this room and that's not just an empty phrase that is literally to protect both the association that you serve and yourself personally in some certain cases if a board member inappropriately discloses information that was discussed in a closed session, that board member can actually be held personally liable for that. So the bottom line, you know, it's not a joke to say this information needs to be kept confidential. Uh, The third thing, and this is, we we could really talk a long time about this, but just know the laws, know the general laws, and you don't have to be an expert. You don't need to be a lawyer to understand certain things. You just need to have uh, certain phrases, certain topics that might come up that would ring an alarm bell to say, you know, we need to stop this conversation right now and call our attorney. Uh, or just get some competent advice as to what we can do or what we uh, what we can't do here. Um, Antitrust is the biggest thing. We talk a lot about antitrust. The AO every one of its constituent and component organizations is literally made up of a group of competitors. Groups of competitors, horizontal, so to speak, that's the legal term of our horizontal competitors are making decisions that can affect the market. So anything that comes up in a board meeting or a council meeting, committee meeting, whatever, where you start making determinations that could affect competition in the market, certain companies that you might want to exclude from a a trade show or something like that, um, you know, how you might go about quote unquote, doing battle, any any kind of thing like that, any kind of phraseology or terminology that comes up with a market competitor who is legally in the market, that should be a huge red flag. And you should shut the conversation down until you get competent legal advice to tell you what you can and can't do about that. Also, you know, obvious, I, I think it's other things under that guise of, of making sure you know what you're doing legally, make sure you don't get into defamation claims. It's Uh, Not easy, but it's not uncommon for things to pop up that if an association acts on something or makes a a statement about something that you could uh, accrue liability to your association on defamation, which is uh, defamation. The general terminology is saying something that's not true about another entity or person that is provably false and that actually harms them. Uh, of course the association can be held liable for that again pam those are just some the three of the top things that i see kind of pop up there are probably a whole boatload of other things probably 10 or 12 issues we could sit and talk about uh at, at another not at another time perhaps but those really are the three things that that uh, should be top of mind for all board and committee members.
0: Kevin Dillard, AAO General Counsel, thank you so much for telling us about fiduciary responsibilities and affiliation agreements, some wonderful advice offered. And also many thanks to Roger Hanshaw, who's a parliamentarian and works with the AAO House of Delegates. That's a wrap for this update for members of the American Association of Orthodontists. Again, thanks to Kevin Dillard and to Roger Hanshaw. This is Pam Paladin. Thanks for listening.